So this guy, Jesus, he's, uh, he's been making quite an impression on our society. He's been doing the miraculous, and it's incredible. I mean, he calms the storms. He has power over nature. He heals those that have leprosy. Nobody touch a leper. He takes food and creates it out of thin air and feeds the multitudes, like 5,000 men plus the women and children. It's been reported that he's actually walked on water, that he's cast out demons, and he teaches in such a way that it just, it's with authority. People look at that and they say, how can this be? This person, he heals the blind and he makes the, line, the, the lame to, to walk again. Now, the religious authorities, <laughs> they really don't know what to do with this guy. He's causing a lot of conflict with them. Part of it is because of who he hangs with. He doesn't hang with the religious crowd, even though he talks about God and faith all the time. He hangs with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the, the down and out of society. They're the people that nobody wants anything to do with, and yet, especially the religious people. And so the religious people say for this reason, because he's hanging with the, the, the deplorable sinners of society. He can't be from God. But we don't believe it. We don't believe it at all. I mean, we look at his life and we say, there's something to him. You ever been in that situation where you're at work and your boss thinks he knows something, but everybody else on, in, in, in the business, they know that that's not true. But who's going to speak up to the boss? Who's going to stand up to him and say, oh, you're wrong? Well, that's how we are with the religious leaders. They're, they're, they're their authorities. What do we have to say? What can we do? Jesus has been growing in popularity. But I got to tell you, the last thing that he has done, it's really taken him to like superstar status, in, in, at least in my neighborhood. <laughs> You want to hear what it was? Okay. So he has some friends. Now he has these disciples that follow him around, but he also has some friends. I think it's, it's, it's Lazarus, it's Mary, and it's Martha. Well, they're really good friends. It's known that they're kind of tight, that, they're, that, that they, they just hang out with each other. Well, one day, Mary and Martha call for Jesus because their brother is sick. Now, Jesus has been healing people all along, so why would he not rush to Mary and Martha's house and to heal Lazarus? So they're fully expecting that Jesus would do that for them. That's the loving thing to do. But Jesus is a, he's a no-show. He's a no-show. And all of a sudden, Lazarus dies. I mean, no more. So they take him through the proper Jewish burial. They wrap him up, and then they take him and put him in a cave, and they put a stone over the cave, and it's finished. One day goes by. Two days. Three days. Four days go by, and then Jesus shows up. 
you can understand that Mary and Martha, they are beside themselves. They have angst. They, have, they're like, they both say the same thing to Jesus. They say, if you would have been here, if you would have been here, our brother would not be dead. But then Jesus looks them in the eye and he says, Lazarus will resurrect. And then he says something I, as an observer, I thought was crazy talk. He started saying that he is the resurrection and the life. I've never heard anybody say that. And then he looked at Mary and Martha and he says, do you believe it? Talk about putting them on the spot. And then he does something I will never forget in my whole life. He says, take me to the tomb. Now, maybe at first I thought maybe he was just paying his respect. and He's overwhelmed with emotion because he wept. But then he says, roll away the stone. I could see it on everybody's face. They, they, all their faces were saying the same thing. Four days has gone by. Jesus, by now he is starting to rot. He start, he's starting to stink. I mean, you, you can't roll away the stone. But then he looks up into heaven. And he says, Father, thank you for you have heard me. Isn't that kind of crazy? He actually talked to God as if he was his father. I'm beginning to believe it. And then he stands at the opening of the tomb and with authority in his voice he says, Lazarus, come forth. There's that moment where you're all anticipating and you're just like, what is, it? It, it, is it possible? Could this really happen? And it did. Here comes Lazarus jumping in his burial closet. We were beside ourselves. We were laughing. We were rejoicing as we were tearing off the burial cloth off of Lazarus. He was alive. He's alive. He was dead and now he is alive. Word got back to the religious community and well, they continued on thinking that this is just a problem that has to go away. But for us, all we could do is lift up praise to God because God is in our midst. This morning, I'm Steve now, that was Levi. I wanted to set the, t uh, set the table for us in our passage. If you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, we're going to be looking at what took place as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. But this sets the context for our passage today. It's a week before Passover, and the people are all talking about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus because this event had just occurred. And there were some people that were saying he has to be the Messiah. And of course, there were some like the religious leaders that were saying he has to go. 
And so we're going to be looking at three passages this morning, three segments, kind of three scenes in the story as it continues to unfold. And in the scenes that we're going to look at, we're going to learn a little bit about how different people saw Jesus and, and, and how that affected their life. And so we're going to see that, and as, as he is going to be making his triumphal entry, that'll be the last passage we look at. But the first part is what I call the unknowing prophecy. Unknowing prophecy. Take a look at verses 45 through 57. We're actually going to read uh, the 45 through 48 right now. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, Jesus, had, had did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Now take note of this. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We got to answer the question, why do they feel that their nation will be taken away? So what we see here is that the Pharisees obviously believe that there is a desperate problem on their hands because so many people are starting to follow after Jesus. This is what I believe they were thinking. They were thinking that a movement was beginning. And they knew that the people of Israel were ready for the Roman government to be overthrown. They knew it and they wanted it to happen. But they needed a leader. And I believe the religious leaders thought that Jesus would be that person. Now the Roman government had their, their claws into the religious leaders of that day. You could say that they were in cahoots with one another. Because the Romans were the, the ones that actually picked the high priest uh, that would reign over as a high priest in Jerusalem. Now, that's not the way it used to be, but that's the way it was at this time. And so if there was a high priest that got out of hand, the Romans could take him out of power and put somebody else in power. Now, there was this kind of relationship because they, the Jews wanted the Romans and the Romans needed the Jews. The Jew, they needed the Jews to cooperate and to keep peace. And the Jews needed the Romans because they were helping to build the temple and they were pouring resources to them. And so we see the religious leaders are intermingled with the Romans at this time. And so it is one political hot mess as you look at this. Now here's, here the Pharisees get the council together to deal with this problem. You say, well, what's the council? Well, the Pharisees, there was two groups of people called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And neither one of these groups had legislative power in and of themselves. Now, the way that you can understand Pharisee or, uh, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees is all you got to do is look at our government and we have Republicans and Democrats. And just as the Republicans and Democrats and Democrats and Republicans hate each other. They're at each other's throats. There is nothing that they unite on. That pretty much summarizes what the Pharisees and Sadducees in a religious way see each other. They're under the law, but they see the law entirely different. And so they hate each other. 
But out of this group, there developed a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the best of the best. They were the 70 leaders that would make judicial decisions and, and, and religious decisions for their nation. But they did it under the watchful eye of the Romans. Now, this would be kind of like a special oversight committee in our government that would include both parties. Now, in this case, the leader of this group was the high priest who was appointed by the Romans. So take a look at verse 49 and how they're going to deal with this situation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now I want you to take note of what's taken place here. The high priest, Caiaphas, the ruler of the Sanhedrin, speaks up and he stops this absurd talk about Jesus leading a revolution. I believe that's what he is saying when he's saying this is, a, th this is absurd. And so when he talks in that language and he says you are to stop. See, what I believe he is saying is that you, when he says you don't know what you're talking about, he wants to reveal the solution. And the solution was that Jesus had to die. We will not allow him to get momentum to become the political leader that will lead a revolution. And it would be better if there would be one person that, would, in a sense, would be martyred for the nation and this revolution idea go away than for the entire nation to be killed by the Romans which is what the outcome would be if there was a revolution. Now, the important thing to note here is that the high priest is actually making a prophecy. He's making a prophecy. Now, just understand this. This high priest was far from God, even though he wore God clothes. He was far from God. And you say, well, Steve, how can God use a high priest who was far from God? My friends, in the Old Testament, if God could use a jackass, he can use a high priest who is far from God. And so he is going to speak through the high priest. And the high priest predicts that one man will die for the entire nation. I think in Caiaphas' mind, it's we're going to get rid of a problem and he is going to die. But here's what God does. God supersedes his words to say exactly what God wanted him to say. God has this high priest use words of substitutionary atonement, meaning that Jesus' death would abolish the old system of sacrifice for sin, of lambs being slain and things like that, and that this one man would once for all die for the sins of the entire world. Caiaphas did not realize what he was communicating, but this is exactly what his words were communicating. This was an unknowing prophecy of Caiaphas, but it was brilliance on the side of God. So this is what God does. 
And notice how the passage ends. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the regions near the wilderness, to the town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Their goal was to arrest him before he got to Jerusalem. Keep that in mind. Now, as I look at this, I see Jesus being sovereign, knowing the hearts of the religious leader. He hides himself intentionally at this time. So that's all we need to know about that last section. But I want to back away from this first section and ask a question. And this question is a question I'm going to ask three times this morning. The, the first the, the question is simply this. The first time we're asking it is this. How do you see Jesus? See, as I look at this passage, I look at different people and how they see Jesus. In this context, there were those that saw Jesus as this political rising star. That was the crowds that were accepting him. They were wishing him to be a political star. But then we see the religious people seeing that he's like a nuisance that needs to go away. But we also see one other person giving their opinion. It's not his opinion, it's fact. Jesus, or God, the Father, through Caiaphas, shows that Jesus is the solution to man's sinful problem. So the question for us today is, how do we see Christ? Do we see him as just a dynamic leader, a political leader, somebody that just leads the way, a good man? Or do we see him as something more? Do we see him as a nuisance? I don't believe him at all. There's skepticism in my heart about who Jesus Christ is. And as a result, I'm just going to kind of just keep him at a distance. Or do I see him as the Savior of the world? Let's move on to the next scene. The next scene I call the act of worship. Now take a look at what happens. We're going to chapter 12 and look at verses 1 to 11 and what occurs. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him, talking about Jesus there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the t with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, therefore, Lord, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may, be kept, may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When the large crowds of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not on, 
only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death also as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now in this passage, we see a contrast developed between the disciples led by Judas, and we see a contrast with Mary. Now we'll get to that in a minute, but I want to take a, a moment to point out that this was like a joyous occasion. Put yourself in their situation. The disciples are at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, and I'm going to guess that they had more than bologna sandwiches ready for the disciples and Jesus. This was going to be a feast. Their brother was dead, but now he was alive. The one who was a rotting corpse is now dipping his bread in the wine with Jesus. I see them reclining at the table, laughing, talking about the things that had happened. I would imagine the disciples could have asked Lazarus, this is speculation on my part, but I would have asked this question, okay, Lazarus, tell me what it was like to be completely dead, completely dead, and then all of a sudden to hear Jesus' voice commanding you to come forth. What an amazing time. I think that they were having a great time. I can imagine them patting their bellies right after a great meal, complimenting Mary and Martha on a great meal. I know Lazarus wasn't a part of it because our passage says he was already reclining at the table. Ah, these lazy men. Anyways, but it was part of Jewish culture that the women would take care of the meal. And so we see this happening. But then something extraordinary happens. Actually, it was an exorbitant type of thing. Mary comes out with an alabaster box. And she takes out of this box a pound of pure nard that would have come, would have been imported from northern India. Very expensive. A year's wage. Now think about your income. Think about a year's wage and buying one thing with it. If you had something that was a year's worth of your income, what would you do with it? That would be precious. And so she takes and she breaks the seal, and all of a sudden she bends down, and she starts pouring this upon Jesus' feet. And then she does another extraordinary thing, because a woman's pride was in her hair, and she would keep her hair up. And so for her to go out in public with her hair down wasn't something that she would do. And so she takes her hair down and she uses her hair to wipe the feet of Christ. She was doing something beautiful, something extraordinary. But then all of a sudden there's this grumbling in the corner. Judas leans over to the other disciples. Man, this could have been sold. Do you know what we could have done for the poor if this would have been sold and given to the poor? Now, before Jesus allows us to go too far, Jesus, being sovereign, knew the heart of Judas. The others didn't know it yet, but he knew the heart of Judas, and he knew that Judas would betray him. He knew he was a thief. He was helping himself to the money bag, and all he was doing was disguising his treachery with righteousness. But it was self-righteousness. And he says, don't, don't bother her. Because what Mary is doing for me is precious and beautiful. 
she is preparing me for my burial. Now, I don't honestly think that Mary understood the significance of what she was doing, but she was preparing Jesus' body for his burial, which should have been a prediction to all that this was going to be happening soon. And so he stops it. The crowds start to get loud outside the home. The party comes to the end. People are coming from near and far, not just to see Jesus, but they want to see Lazarus. Wouldn't you want to see the guy that resurrected from the dead, the guy that was in the tomb that's now breathing? They wanted to see Jesus. And as a result, a lot of people were putting the belief in Christ, which obviously made the religious crowd pretty, pretty mad. So once again, we step away from the scene and we ask this for a second time the question, how do you see Jesus? Maybe you see Jesus like Mary did. Maybe you see Jesus as so precious, so valuable, that you're willing to pour out the most lavish gift upon him. For you, any kind of sacrifice is not too great for Jesus. You want to give to him. Serving, absolutely no problem. Giving, as we talked about last week, that's not even an issue. Sacrificing, no problem. Because it's Jesus. It's Jesus. How could I be so self-centered and not lavish him with my best? But maybe you might see Jesus, as the disciples did for a hot second. I think the disciples would come around all but Judas, but for that moment in time, the disciples were putting the poor above Jesus. And as a result, they were putting others. We can do that. We can do it all the time. We can do it in our relationships where we put our friendships, our marriage, our children, our family members, every, our work relationships. We can put them above Jesus. Nobody goes above Jesus. So how do you see Jesus? We go to our final scene. This is the triumphal entry, and I'm calling this words of praise. Words of praise. Take a look at what happens in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Then Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done these signs. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, these verses describe 
the praise that was really due to Jesus' name. But once again, they came from a people that I don't believe fully understood what Jesus was about. I don't believe that they understood all that he was doing. Now, if you're keeping track, there's three times now in our passage that we're looking at that we've seen people do something they didn't know what they were doing. The Caiaphas didn't understand that he was really giving a prophecy about what God was doing, being the Savior of the world. Mary didn't fully understand that she was preparing Jesus' body for burial, but that's what Jesus said she was doing. And these people are praising God. They're praising Jesus as he's coming into the town and calling him a king. They're saying Hosanna, and they don't fully understand what he's doing. But let me give you an application that's really important here. Do you see that God is superseding all these events in the way that he wants them to happen? And if he did it then, he's doing it now. He's superseding in events in your life, and you don't even realize how he's working. You don't even realize all the things that's taking place. Are you facing a dark moment? Though you can't see it, God knows, and he's superseding. Are you facing a rough patch in your marriage? Are you having a tough time in your job or raising your kids? Though it is difficult for you and you can't see clearly now, understand this, God is superseding in your circumstances. Do you have cancer? Do you have an illness? Do you understand that God is superseding in all of your circumstances? I had a friend of mine tell me this week that he's my age. I don't know what it is with the 50-something, but it, he's my age, and he found out that he has one year to live. He has cancer. And as we dialogued back and forth, he said this to me. He said, Steve, I know we're important to the Lord and that there is a purpose to all of this. My prayer is that we accomplish his purpose no, long, no matter how long we have to live. I call this living with a sovereign perspective. Are you living with a sovereign perspective? God is completely in control. Now the people in this day that should have had a sovereign perspective should have been the religious leaders. The religious leaders should have been in tune with the heart of God, but they weren't. But as in, if they were, they wouldn't have breathed out several times that they must kill Jesus. He must go. But Jesus was in tune. See, I, as you... As, Jesus is about to enter into this city, you need to know this, that the religious leaders wanted more than anything for Jesus to just go away. What they really wanted was to capture him, allow him to be put somewhere where no one could find him. They would have their trial after Passover, and then they would crucify him after everybody had gone to their homes. They did not want this ruckus during Passover when everybody was in Jerusalem. But guess what? 
Jesus superseded. He did not allow them to control the circumstances, and he came into the town exactly when he wanted because he knew he must die to fulfill everything related with Passover. You say, well, why was Passover so important? Well, do you remember Passover? Back in the Old Testament, why God said commemorate Passover? It was at the 10th plague, remember? When the angel of death was going to come, and the night before the angel of death was to come, God said, I want you to take a pure lamb, a spotless lamb, and I want you to slay it within your families, and I want you to take the blood, and I want you to put it over the doorpost of your house, and then you're going to cook the meat of the lamb, and you're going to eat that meat, and it is going to be substance for you for the journey. And so the picture here is that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb. It's through the blood that's been placed over us on the cross. That's what Jesus did. He gave us his body. We just took communion to commemorate taking his body. It was broken for us so that we could have life, so we could have substance, so that we had what it takes to live this life. Jesus had to be the Passover lamb. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says this, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So we come to our passage and we see three ways in which Jesus is received. Here's the first way. The first way is as the king. Take a look. In the passage it says, they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. See, upon hearing the news that Jesus was approaching, what do we see happen? We see the very first flash mob. I don't believe it happened in malls at all. It happened right here in Jerusalem. The first flash mob. Everybody comes to this place, and they all grab palm branches, and they start waving them. Now, some of us are confused on the whole palm branch thing. Why in the world would they do that? Well, in Jewish history, it was very significant because this was to commemorate that there would be a messianic ruler that would come someday. But here's the deal. This time, they're doing the palm branches with the thought the Messiah was actually with us. It wasn't a hope. It was a reality. He's here. He's here. This is what the people thought. Now, the people cry out, Hosanna, because they thought he was the Messiah. Now, it's interesting. Before, whenever people would want to make Jesus their king, it's stated in John 6, when they tried to do it, he would run off the scene. It would appear that in their minds that Jesus is finally accepting his role as the political king, the political savior. And so it is electric in, the day, in that day. And the, so they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's significant because they're quoting Psalm 118, which was part of the Jewish song called the Hallel. And this Hallel was also a prophecy that the messianic leader, the king, would come. And the word Hosanna, literally, uh, it literally means give us salvation now. And what was done in hope before is reality now to the people. So this is how they saw him as a king. Now, there's another way in which Jesus was perceived, but I believe it's what Jesus wanted to be perceived as, a peacemaker. 
because he, because he came in on a donkey. Anybody that rode a donkey was seen as a peacemaker. If you ride in on a horse with a sword strapped to your side or a big iron chariot, then you are a victorious ruler. But when you come in on a donkey, a donkey is a symbol of peace. See, Jesus was kind of confusing their identity of what they want Jesus to be. They were trying to form Jesus into this political ruler, and he's coming in making a clear statement that I am a peacemaker. It's through the avenue of peace that this will happen. Now, if there was any theologians that were there, they would have realized that this was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, God had a plan for victory, but it wasn't with a sword. It was through humility. And the final way that they saw him was a puzzle. A puzzle. It says in our passage that the disciples, the, one who knew, the ones who knew him best, said they did not understand these things. Not until later, but right at that moment, they did not understand these things. The crowd, they obviously didn't understand because they wanted a political leader and the religious leaders. All they wanted was for Jesus to go away. As we conclude our service, I ask for the last time, how do you see Jesus? Do you see him as a ruler, as a king, as the people did? They saw him as kind of this figurehead that simply would solve their problems. This is what the Jews did when they called him king. But when they realized later that week that he was not going to solve their problems, guess what else they cried out? Crucify him. Or do you see him as your peacemaker? The one who has come to bring salvation to the heart of man. The one who has come to change us from the inside out. The one who could do that because of his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. This morning as we conclude our service, we're going to sing a song called Crown Him. And what I would like for us to do is to evaluate how we see Jesus. Now here's the deal. I know many of us have been believers for so many years. But could we possibly rededicate our love for him? I want you just to sit and listen to the words. Later on in the song, if you want to join in, you can. But what I want is for this song to be a rededication of our hearts before a living God. If you are a believer, make sure that you make this Easter time so special. Invite people that need to hear about our great God. We got cards out there. We want you to invite them. Now, if you do not know Christ, if this is new to you, evaluate who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And how should it impact you? He wants to be your Savior.